Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you open up to the book of Obadiah, there's two ways to find that. You can open your Bible to the middle, start in the Psalms, and turn to the right, and you'll hit five different big prophets, and then you'll start hitting the minor, which we started with in Hosea, and a few in, you'll get to Obadiah. Or start in Matthew and go to the left, and you will eventually, after uh, eight or so prophets, get to Obadiah. So if you're new, Visiting with us, welcome. We are doing things a little bit different. Normally, we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but we thought for kicks we would do all of the minor prophets and go through basically one book of the Bible and one sermon each week for 12 weeks, and it's been quite an adventure so far. For those who do not know, just by way of a little bit of background, uh, the Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament, 27. The 39 books of the Old Testament are divided into several different sections, beginning with the Law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And then you get the histories, and then there's the wisdom literature, and eventually you get to this section called the Prophets, which makes up the whole back third of the Old Testament. The first Five of these prophets are called the major prophets, and then the last 12 books in the Old Testament are called the minor prophets, which they're not minor because of their content, they're minor because of their size and the amount. In fact, historically, all of these 12 books were written on one scroll, and so they called it the Book of the Twelve, hence the title of our series the 12. And so we've been through Hosea, and we've been through Joel, and last week went through Amos. And so this morning we're going to spend our time on the shortest book in the Old Testament, the minorest of the minors, Obadiah. Obadiah. Yes, that is a book in the Bible. Now, prophets, so that we understand who we're talking about, these minor prophets, prophets were men that were chosen by God to deliver God's message to God's people and often to the world around God's people. And they were part preachers. They were part predictors. There was some future telling in what they spoke of. And they were watchmen, warning God's people and calling God's people to return to repent or turn from their ways, to return to the Creator and live in the ways that God designed them to live in fellowship with Him. And so, as speakers of the truth, as truth-tellers for God, what you find as you read in these prophets, that prophets were not liked. No one liked prophets. They were oftentimes ignored, And some were even killed by God's own people. The first martyr in the early church, Stephen, gave a great sermon, really long narrative of biblical history. And as he basically was preaching, they were picking up stones to kill him. And his last words spoke about the prophets. And he said to them, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, namely John the Baptist, whom you have now, Jesus, betrayed and murdered. So it was not a good gig to be a prophet. Now, 
what we see, though, and it's important to remember that when we talk about these men who were prophets, these aren't just stories. They aren't just characters in some creative fiction. These were real men who lived in real history. And as we saw last week with guys like Amos, they weren't really that special. And what I mean by that, they were quite ordinary. They were just shepherds and men that God chose, ordinary men God chose, to share a rather extraordinary message. Most of these prophets were sent at a difficult time in the history of Israel that we've talked about before, when the nations or nation of Israel were divided into two nations. Uh, There was the northern ten tribes, which was called Israel, and the capital was Samaria. So sometimes as you're reading the Old Testament, you've got to figure out who they're talking about. And then the southern kingdom was Judah, along with Benjamin, those two tribes, because Benjamin was inside of Judah, the capital in Jerusalem. And both of these two nations were threatened by outside forces, and eventually both were conquered. And as the prophets come and the prophets go, they come at different times. Some of the prophets, both the major and minor, come on the eve of destruction. Destruction for Israel or destruction for Judah. So they're coming and they're warning, saying this is going to happen. Other times, these prophets arise when they're in exile, back in Babylon, or been exiled from their nation and taken away. And then other times, the prophets came as they had returned from exile. So it's understanding where exactly these prophets are, and it helps us understand what is being said and why. Now, as for Obadiah, we're not really certain who Obadiah was exactly. As you read through the Old Testament, you will see that there's, I think, 12 different Obadiahs that are referenced, and none of them really refer to the prophet necessarily. Um, His name means servant of Yahweh, and we don't really know any background about him. What we do know, not who he was, but when he was. And so we know historically, by what we read in his prophecy in particular, that he was writing uh, just after the fall of Judah. So Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians around 587 B.C. Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been conquered by the Assyrians, and the Babylonians came and took out everybody, including Judah. And so what is unique, though, about Obadiah is that his prophecy is not really addressed to God's people. It sort of is, but it mainly is addressed to the enemies of God's people in some ways, Edom, their southern neighbor. Now, it's important to understand the history of Edom a little bit. Uh, Edom was the southeast kind of nation, and you can see the kingdom of Judah right above that and the kingdom of Israel, and then uh, the Assyrians are way up north, and the Babylonians come in from the east. So like all the, the kingdom of Edom right there is generally what is being spoken to by Obadiah. Now, the Edomites or the kingdom of Eden, they were descendants of Esau. And I know a lot of this is just like giving you background, but I've realized that a lot of our biblical literacy is really low, and so hopefully this is helpful to you to understand like this is what's actually going on. But the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, whose name had been changed to 
Israel. So Edom is really the descended brother of Israel. And so according to the Bible, as you look back and you see where did these two brothers begin, namely Jacob and Esau, their struggle with one another began in the womb of their mom, Rebekah. That's where the fight began. And so in Genesis 25, there's an interesting, uh, this is where the story kind of begins, in an interesting uh, couple verses, it says, The children struggled together within her, that'd be Rebecca, mom, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening? I got all this conflict going on in my belly. What is going on here? And so she went and asked God, and she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Well, there are two nations in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So there's twins in your belly. They're not getting along. They're two nations. They're divided, and the younger is going to be over the older. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Because they didn't have ultrasounds back then. The Romans hadn't invented it yet, so... Two babies, right? First one that comes out is all red. And he's hairy like Chewbacca. And so they call his name Esau, right? The second, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So two brothers, Esau comes out as the older. Jacob is holding on to his heel. And he comes out as the younger brother. Now, tensions grew between these young boy nations as they grew up, and they certainly lived different lives even inside their home. Jacob was a little bit of a mama's boy. Esau was the hunter, hairy Chewbacca kid. And what happened, though, was it climaxed, or the relationship climaxed one day when Jacob basically tricked his very famished, hungry brother Esau into giving up his firstborn birthright by offering him a bowl of really yummy soup, which was condemned and stupid by Esau to do, but Jacob was also deceptive. Now, that brought no little conflict into the home, which meant Esau got really angry and Jacob fled. And they lived in separate places for many, many years. And after they both established families, and they really both established fortunes and lives, they did come back together, as you read Genesis, and they did somewhat reconcile, though they ended up living in different locations. And Jacob, uh, ultimately, and Esau, ultimately, began to have tensions, or their people did, for many years. They had reconciled, but their people never really got along, Maybe one or the other had a chip on their shoulder or whatever. But over time, you see, like an older brother, Esau is kind of the stronger one for most or for a lot of the time. And after the Exodus, so Jacob, Israel, make their way down to Egypt eventually. Moses leads them out to become Israel, this nation. And as they're coming out, they are going to pass through the land of Edom. And they make a request, hey, can we come through? We won't fight anybody. We won't hurt anybody. We just need to get to where we're going. And they say, no, you can't. And because Edom was the older, stronger brother, 
Israel really couldn't do much, and so they have to make their way around. But as the history unfolds and Israel becomes a nation and conquers the promised land and kings rise, what we find is when the first kings come, namely Saul and David, they actually conquer the Edomites. And we see, at least in part, a fulfillment of that older shall serve the younger because the power shifts and Israel becomes the ruling nation. And as it goes on, we don't have a ton of information uh, up into Solomon's or through Solomon's reign about Edom. And we do hear about Edom again um, under King Jehoshaphat, who is the southern king or one of the southern kings of Judah. And basically, Edom is under Judah's control. And Judah is basically the sovereign over Edom for some time. But eventually, Assyria rises. And when Assyria starts to move into this Transjordan area, Edom begins to pay tribute to Assyria, and they become good friends with the enemies of God. And eventually, Assyria falls, and Babylonia comes in and conquers Edom, and Edom becomes a vassal or a subservient kind of uh, partner to them. Now, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, the king that's spoken about in Daniel and Jeremiah references him, when they came to plunder and attack and basically destroy Judah and take down Jerusalem, the Edomites participated. They partnered up with Babylon and they participated in the slaughter of the Jewish people at that time. And so for this reason, as you read through the prophets, the minor, in particular Obadiah, but several others, you see that Edom is denounced brutally for what they did. And what you see is that five years after they did that, Babylon came and wiped out Edom. And what you ultimately see is Obadiah prophesied that that's going to happen. He says, you guys are going to be wiped out at the time of Christ, and since that time, Edom really does not exist anymore. Now, that's a lot of history, I realize that. And you read that and you're like, what could some ancient prophecy have to teach me that was given to some other people have anything to do with me? But I would argue that believer or unbeliever, there's much to learn from this prophecy to this people in Edom. Now, the prophecy itself, as we begin to look at it, it does address specific behaviors, but that's not the first thing that Obadiah addresses. In fact, what it addresses first is not the sin that we would characterize as these are the sinful things that were done. Instead, what Obadiah, or God through Obadiah addresses, is the sin behind the sin. Not just what was done, but why they did what they did. And so it begins in the first few or four verses of Obadiah. It says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in clefts of the rock, 
which is important to remember that, in your lofty dwelling, who say, not just with your mouths, but in your heart, who's going to bring me down to the ground? This is what Edom is saying. They're prideful, right? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So, Edom is saying to themselves in their heart, we are so high and mighty, who is ever going to bring us down? And God, through Obadiah, begins his prophecy by saying, I will, personally. Now, it goes without saying, but I'll say, Edom falls and is judged because of their pride. And it's manifested in different ways, which we'll talk about, but pride is the actual heart problem. And I think if we were pressed, we may struggle to find what, what is meant by pride. When we say pride, and so I'm going to use this definition. I'm sure there are others that work. But this is what we're talking about when we say pride. It is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, an inflated view of those things, whether as cherished in the mind, so it could just be an attitude, or as displayed in bearing or conduct, how they carry themselves or what they do. So when we say pride, hopefully that's a pretty comprehensive definition. It's not just behavior. It can be attitude. It can be disposition. It can be lots of things. But that is the heart of it. Now, the most quoted verse in the Old Testament about pride is probably this. Proverbs 16, 18. Many of us have probably said or had said to us, pride comes before the fall. And in truth, what we see the full verse says is that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Which it is true to say pride becomes, goes before a fall, but destruction is a little bit stronger because destruction is what we are talking about when we're talking about Edom. They were destroyed for their pride, completely decimated because of their pride. And I would argue, I might be wrong, but I think that we're quite slow to admit that pride is worthy of such judgment. We can think of lots of things that are worthy of that kind of judgment, of being wiped off the face of the planet. I'm just not sure pride is the one that we would describe as worthy of judgment. I mean, it's bad, but is it that bad? The reason why we struggle to say that it's actually worthy of judgment is the very first thing that Obadiah said. Pride is deceitful. Pride is deceitful. It lies to us about its significance and, I would argue, its view from God's perspective. Now, Perhaps you know, if you have any kind of Catholic background in you, that pride is one of the seven deadly sins. I had to look it up a little bit. Eva Grius, I probably butchered his name, he was a 4th century monk. He actually was the first to create a list of eight common sins in an effort to help people be aware of them and to guard against them. And then, 
Pope Gregory I reduced the list to seven in the 6th century, providing us what we now refer to as the seven deadly sins. And perhaps you know them by heart. They are sloth, anger, envy, pride, lust, gluttony, and greed. Sloth, anger, envy, pride, lust, gluttony, and greed. Now, interestingly, I've been a pastor now for, if you count my eldership at another church, 15 plus years. And it's amazing when you become a pastor, how quick people are to share their sins with you. Before I'd sit down with people, have a coffee, and now when I sit down with people, it's often, all right, let me tell you, burn, it all comes out, which is not a bad thing, it's just a thing, right? James tells us it's good for us to confess our sins one to another, not like a priest to some member, but without doubt, like, that's helpful. I do believe confession is the vomit of the soul, and so I've had a lot of vomit spewed my way over the years. And of all the things that have been confessed, what I find most fascinating is that the seven deadly sins are amongst the rarest of things ever confessed. I would say out of the seven, lust in our day and age is somewhat frequent, but I've never had anyone confess to me greed. I've had never anyone confess to me um, sloth. And I definitely have never had anyone sit down with me to tell me they're struggling with pride. Now, I have told people that I think you're struggling with pride. (laughs) It's fair to say that I've been told that myself. But we are very slow to confess that sin. And I think in part it's because it is very deceitful. I find it equally fascinating that there are a few people that I would call them brave, but I'm not going to, who do seem to confess pride. I've seen a pastor or two stand at a pulpit and say, well, you know, I struggle with pride. And we're very dismissive of that statement, as if it's not really that big of a deal. The confessions I've heard of pride most of the time, if not every time, are confessions that are done in a way that usually minimizes the significance of the transgression. Now, shame on that person for doing that, whatever their heart is, who knows, but let us consider how we receive that as people. I think we actually accept that. Good for you. Way to admit your problem. Interestingly, I find that we will say things like, you know what? He's a good guy. A little proud. He's a good guy. That's a strange statement. It's equally strange as saying like, he's a good guy. He's an adulterer. He's a good guy. I mean, he's a good guy. He's a liar. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a murderer. He's a good guy. And you hear that and you go, what? But we don't do that with pride. We overlook it. 
We overlook it in others because we overlook it in ourselves. Now, it might help, and it might not, to understand God's disposition towards pride. Pride is one of the few things, though there's certainly many things, but one of the few things that God seems to take special note of and to address specifically. It's also perhaps noteworthy that when you're speaking about Lucifer and his fall from glory, in the passages that we kind of refer to that fall, one being Isaiah, he says to this individual, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. Pride was the heart of the problem, or the problem in the heart. Now, the Bible plainly says in more places than I will refer to this morning, some very explicit things about pride. So instead of giving you all the verses, I'll just tell you, you can go search pride in your concordance and find these. The Bible plainly says God hates pride. Now, he doesn't say that about everything, but he says that several times about pride. He says God hates pride. The Bible explicitly says that God resists the proud. He's against the proud. The Bible explicitly says he judges the prideful. And yet, we overlook it in others, but in particular, ourselves. We go, why does God have such a disposition toward it? And I would put forward that I think it's because at its core, pride is a declaration of independence from God and perhaps even a declaration of superiority over God. Pride is actually synonymous with things like scoffing in the Bible, arrogance in the Bible, evil and wickedness. The prideful are essentially self-centered, self-reliant, self-seeking as they pursue their self-glory. This was Edom. Edom had much in their view to be proud of, much in their view to feel superior about. Three things in particular. One was the strength of their heads, their minds. You'll read many times in the Old Testament that the men of the east were wise, and the Bible talks about the wisdom that came from the east, and that would include Edom. They were very wise, and as you see some of the things they build, they were very creative and artistic, brilliant. The word Edom means red, named partially after Esau, who was the red, hairy dude that was born, but also because they ended up living in red, rocky places. They had not just very strong minds, but they had very strong homes, literally. The capital city was a city called Petra, which was not just an 80s Christian rock band. (laughs) It's also not the place where the Holy Grail is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But if you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. Remember in the very beginning of Obadiah, where God says, you say you live in these lofty cliffs. And li-. Well, they literally lived in cliffs, these red cliffs. And they carved these beautiful homes 
out of these cliffs. And this was the capital city of Edom, but there are other places and rocks you can look at and see these kinds of things. And it was really difficult to get to this city. So this is one of those narrow passages. They were nearly impenetrable. They said that you could defend the capital city with 12 people because everyone had to go through these narrow passageways and you sit at the front of it and just kind of cut people up, right? You didn't need much. And so they had a tremendous amount of confidence, pride in the fact that no one could take us down. They also had very strong allies. They had been partners with Assyria and they had been partners with Babylon. Strong heads, strong homes, strong helps. It's like the people that say, man, I, I feel pretty good about who I am, my achievements, my accomplishments. Look what I've built for myself. Look at the friends I have. Pride. Pride. Through Obadiah, as you read, it's interesting to see what God says are going to be the judgments against them and the consequences of those judgments. He says, your strength and your wisdom are going to disappear. He says, your allies will soon become your enemies, which happens five years after they partner with Babylon. And so Obadiah and his judgments come to pass, and they come to pass, if you will, because of the heart behind what they did, pride. But the question is, how was their pride manifest? Wasn't just in their attitude, wasn't just in their view of themselves. As I said, few of us actually confess pride, and I think many of that, much of that is because few of us actually see our pride. So if you want to evaluate whether you're prideful, I don't know if you should just evaluate how smart you are or what you've accomplished or what you have or even the different allies that you might be partnered with. I think a better way to evaluate it is actually who you love and how you love. Who you love and how you love. Obadiah reveals that pride is actually largely relational in nature. So here's what Obadiah writes about what they do. He says, you're super prideful. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, so he's talking about what they did or didn't do when Babylon came in. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you are like one of them. But don't gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth on the day of his calamity. Don't stand at the crossroads and cut off his fugitives. And don't hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So Obadiah describes actually what happens. And he says that this attitude of pride they had actually overflowed into violence against their brother. Now I love C.S. Lewis. And I think he describes pride perfectly. He says in emphasizing that pride is largely a relational thing. It's not just about stuff. He says, if you want to get clear, is that pride is essentially competitive. 
It's competitive by its very nature, while other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. And that's what Edom had as a disposition and attitude toward Jacob or Israel. Edom didn't help their brother in the midst of their distress. In fact, they leveraged their smallness, their moment of weakness, so that they could be greater. They could feel greater and even become greater. And so he, Obadiah says they did three things. And I know as we hear these things, they think, I can't believe Edom did that, right? Let's take it a little bit personal. And think about our brother in distress. Maybe even that brother we don't like. What has Obadiah said they did? They stood by while Israel suffered. They gloated over their misfortune. And then they participated in their calamity. They stood by and did nothing. They made fun of it. And they participated. I think it's interesting that God has given us a pretty good insight into what it means to actually love or not love your brother. And the relationship between, I think, Jacob and Esau or Israel and Edom echoes back to an early, early relationship in the very beginning of Genesis, Cain and Abel. And if you don't know who Cain and Abel are, they were the two sons of our first two parents, Adam and Eve. And what we see in Genesis chapter 4 is that Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice, for his part, is regarded by God as acceptable. And yet Cain, in his sacrifice, is not deemed acceptable by God. And in response, Cain becomes angry. And so he's warned by God. It's interesting to see where Cain's anger is directed. He's warned by God, look, sin is crouching at your door. It's like right there. Cain does not listen, does not heed the warning of God. And he enters the field with his brother and he murders him. And like the next verse, God shows up. And he said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? God obviously knew where Abel was. So did Cain. And yet, he reveals the heart. And he says, I don't know, lie. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, the answer to that question is yes. But Cain reveals, if you will, where his anger was directed, and it reveals, if you will, the heart of the matter, that Cain ultimately was in it for himself, and he did not feel he had any responsibility towards his brother or anyone else for that matter. Now, on the surface, we read a story like Cain and Abel, and we go, well, I'm not capable of that. And yet, let us not forget what Obadiah says, that pride is deceitful. And the moment you've said, I'm not capable of that, 
you've just stepped into a place of pride. Now, what the Bible calls pride, I think sometimes we're apt to call justifiable indifference. Or, what the Bible calls pride, we are apt to call righteous hatred. Now, clearly, Cain's hatred for Abel, I don't think anyone would argue was justifiable or righteous because, our mind would tell us, Abel was a good guy. He believed rightly. He acted rightly. But let's just consider for a second if Abel were not good. What if Abel was a slime ball? What if Abel was unrighteous? What I mean is, though I don't think that any of us would ever justify murder, would we support hatred? Would we understand indifference towards particular people that we see as unworthy? See, as you think about Edom and Israel, let's not forget we've been through Hosea, we've been through Joel, and we've been through Amos, And those three prophets give us a pretty good description of who Israel is at this time. They are wicked. They are idolatrous. They are evil. And that is why God is bringing judgment on them. In some ways, because they are idolatrous, because they have empty religion, because they're wicked, they're like the poster child of a false brother. They're pretending to be brothers. That's why God condemns them so much. And yet, what do we see here? God is judging Edom for not loving their brothers even in their sin. Even though Edom might step back, or many of us step back and go, well, they deserve it. They deserve that. They're not worthy. Certainly, Obadiah's prophecy is convicting in that we go, okay, well, we can't stand by, especially when someone's in need. Right? The Bible speaks about that kind of stuff very plainly. In 1 John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so like, we see a brother suffering in distress, in poverty, like, okay, well, I'm responsible to stand and do nothing. I've got extra. I have means. I need to help. We can, we can understand that. But I wonder if it should be equally convicting for those of us who mock, oftentimes ruthlessly, our fallen brothers. Those who have wandered from the faith those who are even teaching wrongly, how much grace do we have for them? I wonder if we should convict it at times for how boldly and loudly we attack and we confront with anything but love, believing that we are winning them with the truth righteously. Now, Paul warns us against such things. It's interesting. In Galatians, he says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any sin, you are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And he says, Keep watch. 
Easy to fall into pride and go, what's your problem? Why don't you? can't believe you fell for that. can't believe you've fallen into that. James tells us, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back is a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death. You see a disposition there. Not of standing aloof, not of standing back mocking, not even of attacking, but engaging. Confronting, yes, but with the truth and that in love. I've found that it takes a tremendous amount of humility to courageously say anything. To engage our brothers or those who pretend to be our brothers. It takes even greater humility to empathize. Because you know what? It's way better to stand back and go, why did you screw up like that? How could you have ever fallen for that? Have you ever gone that direction? You know how hard it is to empathize? It takes great humility. But I think it takes even more humility to actually stand close enough to hold their hand and help them to walk out of that. Now, the focus of Obadiah's judgment, what we find is actually not on the unlovable. Because guess what? There's a thousand reasons why we can look at someone and say, you're not lovable. You're not worthy. This is why I shouldn't engage with you, help you, speak to you. I'm just going to ignore you or make fun of you. But that's not the directive of the prophecy. It's not directed at the unlovable. It's actually directed at the ones who are responsible to love the unlovable, who are responsible to love those who are most difficult to love. It's interesting, and I'll speak for myself. I probably can count quite a few excuses that I use to not love my brother. But I assure you, there's many more reasons that I probably will give that can sound very justifiable for not loving my enemies. But doesn't that go against exactly what Christ said? Which is, must have been so shocking to hear Jesus say stuff like that. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And they're like, what? And pray for those who persecute you. Why? so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, the motivation is about this relationship, not this. Because if I begin here, love my enemy? Oh. So let me give you a, a little bit of personal story. Uh, I went to, uh, I'm getting some counseling lately. Never gotten counseling in my life. Uh, yeah, here you go. You know, you're screwed up, Pastor. No, I'm not, not in crisis right now. I'm turning 46. Thought it'd be good to sit down and just process life and, and you know, future and all kinds of things. And so, man, it's been interesting. It's kind of one of those situations, you sit down with a counselor and you're like, I'm never counseling again because you're brilliant and I'm an idiot. And I've counseled people, right? And so, uh, I went to a counselor uh, recently and... I brought up an issue that I wanted to talk about, and it was about loving a particular person. And what I should do with this relationship that seems out of sorts. So she asked me, are you, are you at peace? Because I'm like, the problem's not really mine, it's their problem, right? She's like, are you at peace? I'm like, yeah, I'm at peace. She's like, so much so that you're willing to dedicate an hour of counseling to that? I'm like, touche. <laughs> so we began to talk. 
And I talked about how difficult it is to love this person. And she considered, asked me to consider what it would mean to begin by loving God. If that was the motivation behind obedience to love someone who I might see as an enemy. Someone I might see as a victimizer who has hurt me or those I love. When you start with the victimizer, you start with the enemy, like, oh, good luck. But when you start with God and you understand his love for you and your response is to love him, he can actually ask you to do that and you will. And so when we talk about loving our brothers and fighting against pride, what it begins with is this relationship. What is our relationship to God? And motivated by that love, I can love, yes, even my enemies or those who I might consider my enemies. Well, with his case against Edom somewhat concluded, Obadiah declares a final verdict pretty clearly. Speaking once again as Amos does and Joel does, as many of the prophets do, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Sounds very similar to what Jesus said when he says, you will reap what you sow. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And certainly they do. Obadiah eventually says that there are going to be no survivors in Edom. That the exiles of Israel shall return. And that saviors will actually come from Jerusalem. These are the last verses of Obadiah. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles, speaking of, they would be exiled at this point. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land. So they're coming back. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Shephrod shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In summary, he says, the exiles are going to return. God's people shall possess the land, and God will be king. We see that God, in dealing with Edom, destroys his enemies in their pride. But we also see that he destroyed his own people in some ways. And that brings us to that verse in the New Testament that speaks about God disciplining those he loves. And even though Israel is in many ways humbled, they would and will and did rise again in Christ. Pride, it seems, does come before the fall, but humility comes before the rise. Now, Jesus shows us that there is hope, yes, even for the prideful, even for those who are blind to their own pride. It's interesting, if you think about Jesus, the one who is superior, right? The definition of pride with those who have an inordinate view of their superiority. Well, it's impossible for Jesus to have an inordinate view of his superiority because he is supreme. He is perfect. He is incapable of pride because he is the highest of highs. And yet, he shows us what it means to actually be humble in the most cosmic and amazing way. 
the verse that was read earlier by Mike encourages us in this regard. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who was the Son of God. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself of all his wealth, of all his power, of all his glory, and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. God humbled himself. How often have we said in heart or in word, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to serve that. I'm not going to love them. God humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, God humbled himself by becoming a man, suffering the humiliation of death on a cross and bearing the sin of humanity. The humble substituted himself for the prideful. And I want you to consider this. More than that, or in addition to that, Christ humbled himself not just for people who were unfortunately, you know, having a bad day. He humbled himself and died for people when the Bible describes us as hostile enemies. Christ doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself hasn't done first. We were enemies of God, the Bible says, and he reconciled us and made us his children through faith. Therefore, it says, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and every and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ humbled himself so that he could be rightly exalted and now he also humbled himself so that we too can be exalted with him for those who put their faith in him. Now, the truth is, our ex exaltation requires our humility, requires our surrender, it requires our acknowledgement of our unworthiness, it requires us to even see the pride that deceives us. And I would argue that our humility is going to be most displayed in our love for others, especially when that love doesn't benefit us. That's what a loving enemy is all about. I'm not getting anything from this. Now, the climax, if you will, of, of Edom and Israel tension actually came at the birth and the death of Jesus Christ, interestingly enough. The king, Herod the Great, was an Edomite. And when news came of the birth of the true king, what did he do? He went and slaughtered children to try and kill the king so that he could hold on pridefully to his throne. Years later, 30-ish years later, his son Herod Antipas would behead John the Baptist and through Pilate he would condemn Jesus to death. Herod at that time had all the power and pleasures of life. In fact, it's been said that the motto of his reign was 
was simply this. What does it profit me? What does it profit me? He loved no one but himself and acted only when it benefited him. That was the king at the time. And that couldn't be any more different than the true king who gave his life as a ransom for those who could offer him nothing in return. Do you realize that? I heard it said recently that God wanted to be with us so much he was willing to die. He would go into death just to be with us because guess what? He's not getting anything from us that he doesn't already have. And so he loved, knowing that in many ways, certainly his glory would be displayed, but it wouldn't profit him in the way that we might think. He loved those who were unable and unwilling to love him. Herod died, and Jesus died, but Jesus is the only one that rose from the dead, and he rose to enable those who believe and know his love to actually love like he did in a way that the world has never seen. The hope of the prideful is in a very humble faith and a very humble Savior. And I'll close with a passage out of James that very boldly tells us, draw near to God. I believe verse 7 says, I have it written down, God opposes the proud but gives more grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will free from, flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn. Weep and let your laughter be tri- turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Which is like, wow, that's dark. But there's a level of unworthiness we need to acknowledge Because when you humble yourselves before the Lord, your worthiness comes out. We'll sing a song at the end here. It says, I declare two things at the same time, my unworthiness and my worth in Christ. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, if not today, when you rise again at his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your love towards us. Lord, we are deceived quite often. We do not see ourselves as we ought, Lord. We don't love as we ought. I confess, Lord, that we are prideful. We're guilty of a double sin. We believe ourselves more worthy than we are and we believe others more unworthy than they are. Would you forgive us, Lord? Would you help us to see how Jesus loved us while we were sinners? Jesus loved us while we were enemies. Jesus loved us knowing we could offer nothing in return. And yet he died. And he gave us hope. And he declared us worthy in him. Lord, we thank you for the